Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. So today on this podcast, we have Annie Murphy-Paul, who is an excellent science writer, thinker, public intellectual, educator. What else are you? Did I cover the main bases? Mother. Mother. Yeah. Yeah. And um, teacher. I have taught also. So you've really covered a lot of topics within learning and education. I read a lot of your stuff. I read your brilliant blog almost religiously. It's really good. It's good for my attention span as well because you keep it pithy and short, you know. Oh, I thought you were going to say it's good for my attention span because it's so long. I I have a reader who writes me after every newsletter to say that it's too long. Oh, that's ridiculous. Tell them to go to academia. (laughs) <laughs> right, think, right. If I think that's too long. My stuff will seem short, right? Oh my gosh, compared to journal articles and stuff. And then you, you have the appropriate links if you want to venture forward. But mm-hmm. so I find it a really good go-to resource for parents, teachers, educators, everyone. I wanted to ask you, is there some sort of main mission you have or some unifying theme that you think ties together all these various topics you talk about? Yes. I mean, if you're talking about my the span of my whole career, and I've written books that are about one book was Cultural History and Scientific Critique of Personality Testing, that, as you know, called The Culture Personality. And another one was about the science of prenatal influences called Origins. And then now I'm working on this book called Brilliant, The Science of How We Get Smarter. And I would say the thing that links 20 years of writing is really this question that is endlessly fascinating to me, which is what makes us the way we are? And I found the usual answers to that question kind of unsatisfying. I mean, usually we hear about nature, nurture, genes, environment, and each of my books has been an exploration of another kind of answer. Um, You know, the first one obviously was looking at 
personality and the inadequacies of personality uh, tests to capture who we are and some other ways that we might think about defining who we are, like telling stories about ourselves, for example. And the second book, Origins, was about this these really consequential nine months between the moment when our genetic inheritance is put into place at conception and then when we come into the world and that's when we think of nurture as beginning. But of course, it starts happening earlier than that, much earlier than that in the womb. So now my current book, I'm very unsatisfied with the idea that intelligence, which I know is a lasting interest of yours, that intelligence is this sort of innate, unchanging characteristic that is either the product of genes or perhaps of childhood, how we as children. I'm really interested in situational influences on intelligence and how the environments in which we learn and work really profoundly affect how intelligently we can think and act in that moment. And so that's everything I write these days about learning, about intelligence, about education in the workplace is animated by that frame, that perspective. That's great. I want to ask you a question. You know, within the field of my field of psychology, it seems like social psychology seems to be one of your biggest interests mm-hmm. and how that relates to our changing nature of who we are and who we believe ourselves to be. I would like to talk a little bit about this nature-nurture controversy. Obviously, it's both. But what extent do you think there is, like even going back to your book about, I really liked your book on personality and personality testing and just how the, well some of the predictions are and what it really mm-hmm. says about who we are. I mean, do you think that there is a self that is stable to some degree? Just how influenced by the environment is our personality? Do you think it's much mm-hmm. more influenced than we give the credit for in society generally? Yeah, I, I think it's much more influenced by situational factors than we normally think it to be. It's easier cognitively and it's more satisfying emotionally, I think, to think of ourselves as very stable and unchanging and to think of other people in our lives as stable and unchanging. But if just really a moment's reflection will show you that it's not, it's really a fiction. I mean, I think one of the appeals of traveling, for example, is that you get to put yourself in a completely different situation and feel the thrill of almost being a different person. Mm -hmm. Um, But then we think that when we go home, you know, we're back to our old selves. But really, if you've ever had the experience, and I can't imagine anyone who hasn't, of you know, being at a party, for example, and talking to one person and feeling like you're you're just on, you're smart, you're witty, you're you know, all your jokes are just going over are going over just right. I've never and, experienced that. <laughs> oh, come on, God, I've seen you. And then you turn to another person, and it's like you feel kind of dumb, you know, dumb and dull witted. Maybe you've never felt this way, but I often Boy, my whole early childhood. I'm tired. No, and what's different? You're the same person, but. Yeah relationship between you and that other person is different and it's evoking something different from you you know i personally experienced that i think a lot of people really resonate with that you know let's jump right into standardized test you know it's like dump jump right into it i feel like a lot of people in that sort of testing mode their mind changes they increase their anxiety perhaps would you say they're not at their best cognitively under such yeah yeah we know that from all the research on stereotype threat that test the testing situation is just that it's a very specific situation and although you know each time you take a test it's in some sense a new situation the the circumstances of the testing situation are kept very uniform purposely so that the results will be consistent but it also means that some people a large number of people consistently underperform when they take 
standardized tests because of the situation that they're in. It's a recurring situation. And so that's why the work of, you know, people like Josh Aronson and Claude Steele and Gregory Walden and Jeffrey Cohen are, is so important looking at Carol Dweck. Carol Dweck, yeah, looking at the testing situation as a situation and thinking about how we can modify that situation. Like, for example, giving students a values affirmation right before they take a test like that or having them engage in a 10-minute writing exercise where they sort of download all those anxieties. And so those anxieties don't use up cognitive resources while they're taking the test. So those kinds of interventions are so interesting to me because it's not saying you have to change something fundamental either about, you know, an entire school or workplace or really uh, anything about yourself. It's more releasing something that's already there. I like that unleashing. Unleashing, yeah. Maybe there's some things we don't want to unleash in students though. And let's segue into that because you've also written on the value of discipline as well, right? Maybe we don't need to unleash everything all the time. Maybe there's a value to actually self-control. You have written about that as well. Um, Did you want to speak about that at all? Self-control, interesting. Do you mean like regulatory uh, strategies like controlling one's attention or metacognitive kind of strategies or impulse control, all those things? Well, you know, you've argued that there can be great value in studying things that you don't like to study. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm referring to. Huh, huh. Things that might not be always fun. (laughs) Yes, learning is not always fun. That's definitely I hope I'm not misrepresenting. No, 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 no. That just could go in so many different directions. The one thing that immediately occurs to me, because it's research that I've been reading about and I really find interesting, is research led by um, David Yeager at University of Texas. And Angela Duckworth, uh, your colleague, is involved with this. Right next door. Right next door. (laughs) Yeah. So the idea that, you know, in learning, in education, there are going to be times when the learning is, when the tasks are boring, they're repetitive, or they're not just not a lot of fun, but you really do have to engage in them to create a solid foundation. I mean, I think of something like learning your multiplication tables or learning how to spell certain words, things that are not creative or fun, but are necessary. And so what Jaeger and Duckworth and the others have looked into is whether having a beyond the self purpose for learning can allow us to regulate our impulses. In this case, our impulse would be to like, just stop doing this really boring thing, but to keep at it, to be persistent, to have that kind of grit that keeps you going forward. And in fact, it is the case that when you have a beyond the self purpose, a purpose that transcends you, maybe it's because you want to use your education to give back to your community, or ultimately you want to become a doctor and you want to help people, that kind of thing can help us discipline our unruly impulses and keep us on track. Yeah. And then how do you reconcile that? And this is something I've been trying to do in my own research. I agree that that's so important. But then there's this other set of variables that I know both of us are deeply interested in, things like curiosity, interest, Mm -hmm. motivation, engagement. Yeah. So it seems like too much, it's like a pendulum maybe, mm-hmm. uh, too much of the sheer of pure grit without those other variables, it just sounds mm-hmm. seems like duty, right? Yeah, but it right. seems like if you combine all these things, then you get like the best outcomes. Would you agree? I do. I do. And that's why, you know, something I see, especially in my work on educational technology, I write a column about you do a lot of writing on technology that, yeah. for uh, the Heckinger Report, and it also runs in Slate. You know, some of the more over-enthusiastic proponents of educational technology will suggest that we don't really need teachers anymore because we have computers that can do everything. And I think 
that finding that balance, especially when we're novice learners, is one reason why teachers are so important because they might be the ones who can help students say, okay, go explore this, exercise your creativity, find out what's interesting about this, and then come back and we can you know, work together on building the skills that you need to push that curiosity and that interest one step further. You know, it can be hard to know how to do that on our own, although that's part of learning how to learn, it's learning how to manage your own processes of learning, figuring out what you still need to learn, buckling down to do that maybe hard or boring work, and then going out and exploring again. But in the early stages, I think a teacher can be so important in helping a student find that balance. Yeah, and you've also written though it can backfire if a student feels like it's pressured too much, right? You said there's great value in having a student discover on their own that, that it's relevant. Exactly. No, that's research that I absolutely love by Chris Huleman and Judith Thrakovich that says that if you tell students, you know, this is important because you're going to need this someday, which is a message that we've all heard at one time or another from a teacher or a parent, that often backfires, especially among students who aren't doing very well or don't have a lot of confidence, because basically what you're telling them is you're going to need this. And they interpret that as Oh, and I'm no good at this, so I'm, you know, I'm really screwed. That's, that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, but if it's counterintuitive, yeah, sorry. Yeah, if you, a lot of this stuff does, and that's why I think it's so important, as I'm sure you agree, that to look at the research and not go on what our intuitions lead us to do, because so often our intuitions will steer us wrong. Yeah. But back to that research, if you encourage students to make their own connections and say, "How do you think this will be valuable or useful to you in the future?" then that is much more motivating to students. Sort of have them figure that out or write, maybe reflect or write about it on their own. Yeah. My friend who's a delightful teacher, her name's Laura Jane, linked uh, in Florida, she has developed these, what she calls the sensitivity sketchbooks, where Hmm. there are these personal journals that all the students in the classroom have, and she gives them time to be sensitive to their own internal state and their Mm -hmm. own internal life and how it connects to the material, and they can all write it in these sketchbooks, and they're kind of like journals, and she says the kids love them. Yeah, yeah, that's such a great idea. I'm sure over time that helps them become more aware of what they're feeling because we're not usually encouraged to tune into that at school. That's exactly right. Yeah. She said that like one of like the big beefy like football players or whatever said was like, Laura, I want more of the sensitivity sketchbooks. I just, <laughs> <laughs> she found that hilarious. That is really funny. <laughs> uh, maybe he didn't say that in front of his peers. But, okay, yeah, anyway. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So there are so many different topics that you cover and maybe at the end of this, we can like have a grand unified theory of how it all connects. But if we don't, <laughs> that's okay too. <laughs> Computational thinking. Uh-huh. Why is it important? Uh-huh. So this is, you're drawing this from a column I recently wrote for Slate, which was about the very counterintuitive idea of teaching computer science without using a computer. And the idea there is that computational thinking is something separate from a computer, the principles on which computers and databases operate. And that's information that all of us living in a computer-filled world should have. The program I was writing about is called Computer Science Unplugged. That's what the... I love that. (laughs) Yeah, that the founders of Computer Science Unplugged believe, and I have come to believe that as well, that it's not just computer science majors who need to know how computers work, the principles on which computers work. It's all of us. I mean, we all use computers almost continuously throughout our day. So... Computer Science Unplugged has come up with a lot of these really fun, engaging, often like very active and social 
physically active and social exercises, which is not usually something you associate with computer science, but that can be used even by children as young as kindergarten and elementary school students all the way up through high school and college that they can use to learn about the principles of computational thinking. And I just thought it was such a cool idea that you could be introducing kids to this fundamental way of interacting with the world really early and earlier probably than they would be able to do anything on the computer. I mean, that that was the initial idea behind Computer Science Unplugged, that you had to have a certain level of proficiency in programming before you could get to some of the cool ideas behind computational thinking the way it was traditionally taught. So they found an alternative way of teaching that allowed students to get into those cool ideas before they could ever have hoped to be programming. Yeah, that's really cool. One of my degrees was in human-computer interaction, and I didn't haven't done anything with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the human-computer interaction thing, I haven't really done anything with it. Maybe subconsciously, like that kind of computational thinking has helped me Yeah. in being a more smart individual. Do you think that you can be smarter even if your IQ score never budges your whole life? Absolutely. I mean, to me, smart means dealing effectively with the real world. Ooh, so I cool. really... I really love the phrase by Edwin Hutchins, Cognition in the Wild. It was the title of his study of how thinking works in the real world. And he actually studied people on who were on like a Navy battleship and how in that real world setting, each individual was a part of this almost hive mind that was kind of running the ship. And he was interested in there was a kind of collective intelligence among the people running this ship. And so I think For so long, we have looked at cognition and captivity, you know, basically like cognition as it happens on a paper and pencil test in a room under a a ticking clock, you know, and I just think that's some usefulness. It does, you know, predict some outcomes, but it's not by any means the whole story. And so I'm not really interested in IQ tests or IQ scores. I'm interested in how intelligently and effectively someone is able to advance their own goals, which is actually a lot like your definition, I think, of personal personal intelligence. Yeah. You have to really bring personal uh, goals into the mix, right? So I wear a couple hats. One is as a personality psychologist and individual differences researcher. Mm -hmm. I do think there are relatively stable traits Mm -hmm. across our lifespan. Will Fleeson has done some really cool research on personality showing that self-reports of the big Mm -hmm. five, personality, neuroticism, extroversion, consciousness, agreeableness, and openness to experience, those self-reports are moderately correlated in the real world, in the wild, with the average behavior that mm-hmm. you have. And in this great situational versus dispositional debate that mm-hmm. like Walter Michel and Seymour Epstein had in like the 70s has tended to be reconciled that there are definitely situational influences. But when you aggregate it all together, there's something that it means to be me mm-hmm. or you on these dimensions. And then also on IQ, something that I've been trying to do is reconcile that research with a lot of the great things you're saying, which are true, we don't have to equate intelligence with cognitive ability testing scores, mm-hmm. cognitive testability. We don't have to. Most IQ researchers do, right? They equate intelligence with that kind of skill set required to do well in the IQ test. And I guess if you break out of that paradigm, then it does open up a whole world. You know, when at least in terms of personality, these things are moderately correlated. So it's not like personality is completely in the wild or like... Right. And I don't think you would no. say that. No, I, and I always I always want to emphasize that I'm not saying that 
that there are no stable characteristics across. Relatively stable. Yeah, but that maybe we haven't paid enough attention to those things that are situationally inflected. And because there's such a dominant sense among many scientists and among the public, the general public, that personality intelligence are fixed and innate and not subject to situational factors. I just want to be calling attention to this other piece that we have not been paying enough attention to in the past. Yeah, it's a great thing that you're doing, that you're bringing attention to that. It's, it's much needed. IQ researchers will strip all context away because mm-hmm. they don't want any prior influences. They think that's what pure intelligence is or raw intelligence is as much as we strip up. But of course you can't strip, you can never. And they, and I think they would realize that, you know, even as much as they, the ideal would be to completely, you know, Colbert, all these things are cold. You know, my advisor, Robert Sternberg has studied how these things are very culturally based as well. Yeah. Um, but we have a tendency, I think once we've created a, an entity like IQ, then we start treating it like it's reify re- it. Yeah. We start reifying it. Yeah. And I think it's very easy to fall into that trap. Great. Absolutely. I think like people like you are in the minority, though, and me as well. And we're completely satisfied not equating intelligence with general cognitive ability, Mm -hmm. um, which is what IQ test makers tend to equate. You know, there's a long history in education of equating the two because of some of the most, you know, like Louis Terman and his advocacy of gift and talent education in the 50s and 60s made the argument that that's the only line where you're going to find the geniuses. Right, and right. And he made that argument, so it became grounded in education and is such a strong part of education that not many people are challenging it because it's been there for the last 50 years, that sort of right. idea. Yeah, I remember having a conversation with Gregory Walden at... Mm, um, he's great. Cal- yeah, at Stanford, mm. who is one of my favorite thinkers on this. Me too. And I remember him saying, it's really all Terman's fault. <laughs> I, would, you know, I, would, I would agree with that to some degree. Yeah, yeah. He had very strong beliefs and... It's interesting, you know, he did this longitudinal study where he followed up these high IQ kids selected based just on their high IQ, and he found that, that at the end of the day, like, he admitted it, that the IQ was not the most important variable he was predicting. It, it was personality traits, not these mm. non-cognitive traits like perseverance and motivation and stuff. You know, yeah. what Angela Duckworth is giving us empirical evidence for. Right, and, but Angela Duckworth is studying it as a trait, mm. as a, you measure this and it's reliable and valid. Mm. And something that she is trying to study, but we don't have conclusive answers yet, is that can grit be improved? Yeah. You well, seem you know, confident that it can be. Well, again, I would say let's think about the environments in which people are working and learning. Are they supportive of expressing grit or carrying through with perseverance? And I'm reading a book right now that's coming out soon by a personality psychologist, Brian Little, called Me, Myself, and Us, I think. And he talks about how there are relatively stable personality traits, but that people's, I think he calls them personal projects, people's passions, basically, can bring out all kinds of new dimensions of personality that no one had seen before. Like you can imagine an introverted, rather timid person who has some kind of cause that is really meaningful to her and she becomes able to testify in front of Congress or speak in front of hundreds of people, you know? So I think I would always want to keep in mind the situational influences, like is someone in the grip of a personal passion? And if so, that can change what it means to have a kind of Settled personality. Yeah, I really like that phrase, grip of personal passion. Yeah, that's yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Did you just come up with that on the spot? 
No, well, he um, might have said passion, but he calls them personal projects, I think. Yeah. 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 So the passion element, you know, there's different kinds of passion. There's like a harmonious and obsessive. Actually, what do you think is the difference between passion and interest? Well, I think it would probably be a matter of degree of affect that you bring to it. I guess maybe passion has a more affective component, like you bring all kinds of emotion to it, and interest is more purely like cerebral. But also I think of passion as something that's stronger than an interest. You could have a passionate interest. Cool. Passionate interest. That's cool. Yeah. You can have a non-passionate interest as well. Um, yeah, sure. You could have a passing interest in something. So common core, good or bad? <laughs> it's all about the implementation. Okay. I actually think the ideas behind it are solid and supported by research. I'm a big fan of Evie Hirsch and his ideas about the importance of background knowledge to comprehension. And again, that's kind of another situation, and in, in this case, an internal situation that makes us more intelligent. When we have knowledge and it's deep and it's interconnected and it's transferable knowledge, our minds just work better. You know, we're smarter. That's It's a domain-specific kind of phenomenon where we're able to make better judgments or perform tasks more effectively in areas where we know stuff than where we don't. And that's another thing that I sometimes see people in the, ed in the educational technology world saying that kids don't really need to learn facts anymore because you can always just Google it. Well, actually, facts have to be stored in here for all those cognitive processes to work. I've seen you hold up a sign of a one-sentence <laughs> op-ed yes. which relates to this. Do you want to say what that was? Well, you've been Google stalking me, so you <laughs> probably can quote it better than I can. It was something like, we need knowledge and not just skills. So, am I right? I don't know. I, don't, I, I mean, I'm not like that much of a stalker, but okay. I, mem so, I memorized it. Knowledge and not yeah. just skills. I, you know, you, you hear a lot these days about 21st century about education, right. yeah. and you know that it's become kind of a buzz, meaningless buzzword, but... Too often when people talk about 21st century education, they're talking about skills and knowledge is left out. But knowledge is just as important or more important than it was in the era before Google. That's cool. Yeah, I really like that. You know, like IQ tests and our measures of intelligence, what we call intelligence tests, try to strip as much knowledge away. But maybe we should allow students to gather as much knowledge as possible and give them a chance to like synthesize it or reflect on it as mm -hmm. opposed to just regurgitate it. Well, yeah. Have you heard about the theories of Kieran Egan, where he this deep learning where students might study one subject for like years, like apples or dust or well, like Benjamin Franklin was a big advocate of that. Yeah. I mean, I think there is something to that, that becoming ex an expert in one domain helps you understand something about the nature of expertise in general. And I think lots of kids are making themselves into experts on their own. You know, my older son is an eight-year-old expert in American history and in baseball. And, you know, lots of kids become experts in dinosaurs or, you know, things that interest them. And that's an incredibly motivating force when you have, a again, a personal passion, a personal interest, and then you become an expert almost in the course of pursuing your passion. And I think we could do a lot more of encouraging students to do that. Yeah, Annie, you study a lot about what are good ways to learn and what are not. Do you mind telling the audience a little some optimal the things you've come across in your research, the optimal ways of learning? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, again, I, I'm always looking at how the environments in which we learn are, the word I like to use, evoke our intelligence or suppress our intelligence. And unfortunately, I think a lot of learning environments, schools around the country are suppressing kids' 
intelligence rather than evoking it. But one example of an evocative environment would be one in which kids feel they belong. And I think we often don't recognize how important the social element of learning is and how important it is feel for students to feel part of a community, a community of learners, of belonging. belonging. Yeah. Especially in middle school, the evidence is pretty clear that many, many students do not feel that they belong in school and that you can just see their academic performance dropping because they don't really feel like they have a place there, that they're accepted for who they are. And there's a lot of changes we could make to middle school to make sure that that sense of belonging stays yeah, strong. Yeah, as well as academia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people, yeah. a lot of women in uh, science. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, that's a very good point. That's a very good point, yeah. Yeah, it's so, it's so important. I really like that you raise attention to that. What other good, not not just like situational factors, but, but things that the person can do, mm-hmm. active learning strategies or something to be a better learner? What, what are some okay. good strategies? Are you thinking more of like the cognitive strategies of like how to memorize things and, you know. I'm asking you because you're you're the the expert. The the next thing I was going to mention might not be quite what you have in mind, but you. you, I have nothing in mind, Annie. I'm like, I'm trying to get your wisdom. Right, right. So I was going to mention Carol's work on the growth mindset. I'm really impressed with how important it is to. Mindsets. Yeah, to believe that intelligence can be expanded through one's hard work and effort and how, you know, the fixed mindset, which a lot of people have, you know, I'm this, I'm this smart and no smarter and nothing I do is going to change that. That's really confirmed every day for a lot of students who get that message from the teachers and other adults around them. So that would be something that can be changed. Carol Dweck has shown that the growth mindset can be cultivated. So that would be another important piece, I would think, of an evocative learning environment. What about like what are like highlighting or like underlining, uh, teaching yeah. yourself, yeah. going to the office hours? Which ones are should students do? Yeah. Well, throw out the highlighter. Step away oh, from the highlighter. Really? Yeah. Okay, I'll throw that in my whole box. <laughs> no, I mean the problem is that students use highlighting and rereading. They rely way too heavily on those strategies. Those are some of the most popular strategies for studying and they are the least effective. So okay. Really what students should be doing is not rereading that textbook for the 10th time, which gives you this illusion of fluency, that this illusion of knowledge that you know it. But as soon as the test is in front of you, it's like, poof, it's gone. What students should do is close that textbook and engage in what is known as retrieval practice, which is basically testing yourself. And in this one regard, an old-fashioned technique is is still really useful. That's flashcards, because that's effectively you know, retrieval practice, hiding the answer from yourself and practicing, pulling that up from your memory. Because we think of testing as a way to measure what you know, but testing, engaging in the practice of testing, self-testing actually changes what you know. So every time you bring it up out of your memory, you're strengthening that connection. So retrieval practice and then spaced repetition, which is something that we've known about for so long, psychology has known about for so long, and still we don't do it, Um, you know, and that's not cramming the night before a test, but revisiting the material at spaced out intervals throughout the semester. I space out all the time, Annie. (laughs) I'm really good at that. I'm I'm good at spaced out learning. We talked about daydreaming and the importance of daydreaming, but I would just add one more technique. And it's funny, I didn't bring these up at first because I feel like People hear these and they're like, yeah, yeah, like another study tip. But these things really work. I feel like if 
maybe if teachers incorporated them more into the way that they teach and the way that they review for uh, help their students review for exams or you know they're being incorporated into technological tools so maybe that'll be the thing that brings spaced repetition and retrieval practice and this other thing i was going to mention interleaving into the mainstream even though you know as i say we've known about these things for decades and they've kind of never caught on What's but interleaving, interleaving oh, yeah. Inter, yeah interleaving is when you know usually when a kid is completing a homework assignment they'll get blocks of say math problems like here's your addition problems here's your subtraction problems here's your multiplication problems and then the student knows exactly which solution strategy they're going to be using even before they start on the problems but of course that's not how problems come to us in the real world or on tests usually the hardest part about the problem is figuring out what solution strategy to apply so it's much more effective to mix up those types of questions not have them in blocks so that with each question you have to figure out okay what kind of problem is this and what do I need to do to solve it so that's something that teachers or even parents or students themselves could implement pretty easily I think very cool you've written a lot about learning disabilities dyslexia in particular yeah you wrote a a lot why are you so interested in dyslexia out of (laughs) it is the most prominent most rates of learning disabilities how did you get interested in that topic well there is dyslexia in my family Um, yeah that is something that has personally affected me because I've seen people that I love struggle with dyslexia but also I'm very interested in reading and the mechanics of reading and and so of course, when something goes wrong with a process, that can be a window into understanding it more generally. And it's also, interestingly, one of the few places where, and you, you might disagree with me about this, so it would be interesting to know if you agree or disagree with me. But, I disagree. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know you know a lot about the brain and you write a lot about the brain, but I'm persuaded that at this point, there's not a whole lot that neuroscience has to offer in terms of direct prescriptions for what to do in education. Right. And right. you know that's not a widely shared view if you look at how much stuff there is out there about brain-based learning. Yeah, and there's a lot of junk out there. There's a lot of junk out there. And so I, uh, dyslexia strikes me as one of the areas where research in brain science really has contributed to telling us what to do about it, what to do about the condition of dyslexia, that the neuroscience research that has showed us that it's really an oral problem, a problem of hearing rather than seeing, is a really useful insight which we can use to treat dyslexic people and help them more effectively. But in general, I don't know, do you, do you see I, applications for neuroscience? In- I know that you've argued recently that there's a lot, it's a lot more malleable and culturally based dyslexia and you've reviewed some gray matter research on that yes well the idea that really none of us have brains that were wired to read you know that's not a program that our brains have evolved to have so we have to kind of painstakingly rewire our brains one at a time to learn to read and the one of the ways that that happens is simply getting a lot of reading practice but for dyslexics reading is so difficult that they do less of it and so their brains change less so it's part of when we're examining a dyslexic child we're not just seeing that initial deficit that initial kind of Uh thing that's different about their brain we're also seeing the result of maybe many years of getting less practice at reading and thus less change of the brain i have a question why do you make the argument that we our brains aren't wired to read like what's the evidence for that 
that our brains didn't evolve uh, brain mechanisms to support the act of reading? Well, reading is just such a recently developed technology. We, there hasn't been time for our brains to develop a sort of reading-specific module. So, you know, there's really interesting books by Stanislaus Dehaene, is that how you say it? And uh, yeah. Marianne Wolf at Tufts about how the brain has to undergo a transformation really to become literate and fascinating experiments looking at Colombian gorillas, for example, who literally grew up fighting and never, so never learned to read, but then became literate as adults and um, the changes that their brains underwent as they became literate. Because often when people don't become literate, it's not a unselected population. There's some reason that they didn't learn to read. But in this case, it was just like everybody who grew up in this community was a guerrilla fighter rather than a school child. So it made them a good population to look at. Right. So we could say that, like, neurologically speaking, that people who have difficulty reading or have difficulty with language more generally, because reading just plays on our evolved mechanism for language, predominantly in the left hemisphere, Broca's area, Wernicke's area, that people who have difficulty with this do have some sort of different kind of structural wiring or so. But of course, that structural wiring is influenced by experience, is experience dependent as well as influenced right. by genes. Right. They're both in interaction. Right. So you could use neuroscience as a guide to what specific kind of language functions are impaired or need remediation. So you, neuroscience could make the case that is that's true. But I agree that we should be very hesitant about and be wary about just how much and not get too overexcited that we really know that much about how to apply it. So I, I'm totally with you on that. Right, right. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Let's talk about robograders. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that's interesting. You know, anything we can do to make kids more interested in learning, more willing and motivated to keep persevering. And it seems like robograders might be an answer to that. Right, right, right. What's a robograder? Yeah. I wanted to give your listeners background on why it would be that robograders might have that effect. Because, of course, when most people hear the term robo-readers or robograders, yeah, the idea of subjecting a piece of, you know, and because when, when I'm talking about robo-readers or robograders, we're not, I'm not just talking about scoring a bubble test. There are software programs now that claim to be able to assess and evaluate pieces of writing, you know, and so... There's been a, a huge pushback from, you know, faculty who teach writing, for example, who say there's no way that a computer, that a machine can evaluate the quality of a piece of writing. And I generally agree with that. I don't think they're ready for prime time in that regard. But I did find very interesting some studies that suggested that feedback from an automated program on students' writing on pretty basic stuff like, you know, sentence structure or punctuation or the way that a piece was organized that students responded very differently to that kind of feedback from a machine than similar than to similar feedback from a person. And in this case, it was the very non-humanness of the robo-grader that made it a better tool for learning. You know, usually we think that the human element is the most important thing in, in education, and it, it usually is. But in this case, it was the fact that it wasn't a person saying, you did this wrong, that made the feedback seem less threatening to the student. And so they were more willing to to repeatedly revise and they actually ultimately wrote better papers because of this. Well, I wonder like if you did a study where you just specifically isolate good teachers versus robo graders versus all teachers versus robo graders, 
I wonder how we can apply these principles to like I wonder if it's not really the human versus robot dimension, but it's the mm. non-judgmental dimension. Yeah. What if we actually had? I was thinking when I was reading your article. What if we made everything more revisable and this growth back to this growth mindset culture where students know that on every assessment, everything they're not being judged. It's just feedback that they can revise. Is there lessons we can learn from robots? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> That's what I'm right. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. I also it makes me think of you know again Greg Walton's idea of wise interventions. Wise, right, yeah. you know, because negative feedback can be experienced as very alienating. Like you don't belong here. You're not a part of this community. You're not good enough. And so a wise feedback says basically, I have high expectations. I know you can meet them. And that's why I'm giving you this feedback. And even just a little post-it note, you know, put on top of a, a regularly graded assignment that says, I have high expectations. I know you can meet them. That's why I'm telling you this has amazingly, you know, positive effects on students' willingness to revise and to react to that feedback. So I think that's like a really cool way to go forward, too. I love it. Thank you so much for this interview, Annie. I have very high expectations for your <laughs> new book. You know I can read them, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Would you like to end with any sort of lasting advice for parents, educators, or individuals who want to learn and become smarter? Yes, pay attention to the environment in which, the immediate conditions in which you're learning and make sure that they are evoking intelligence and not suppressing it. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as informative and thought-provoking as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can go to thepsychologypodcast.com. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. 
To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. 